three, two, one. Hello and thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This week we're going to be talking about the January 6th congressional hearings. Starting, I believe, on Thursday of this week, Congress is going to be televising portions of those hearings and there's going to be a series of broadcasts starting on this Thursday, but there'll be uh, some more in the future and, and next week and beyond where the f- members of the committee will present to the public in a primetime uh, television slot, no less, uh, information and documents and testimony and other facts that they have gathered with respects to the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol building. And what I would like to focus on first is the authority by which Congress conducts hearings or investigations and, and why Congress is doing a committee on the 1-6th incident. You can call it an incident, an attack, and that's actually part of the reason why that there is a that Congress is having uh, hearings is to determine, to the fullest extent uh, within their power, what happened, what were the events of that day, how did they unfold, what's the timeline, who was involved, who responded, and and so forth. So their their objective is to try to create the the fullest possible picture and accounting of the events of January sixth of two thousand and twenty one. But, but first, I just wanted to mention, so Congress has, per the U.S. Constitution, specifically the power to conduct this type of forum, this type of hearing. And I cite as an example in the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, which includes the following um, list of, and Section 8 is powers of Congress. So that's a very relevant portion of the Constitution to look to. And if you read down on the list, it says to constitute, this is the Constitution, the Constitution says Congress has the power to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. So, what the heck does that mean? Why do they say, why does it say inferior to the Supreme Court? I think, and throughout the history, we've, we've sort of figured out that what that means is we don't want any confusion to be had about where rulings where court rulings come from so in other words we didn't want american citizens to think if if the supreme court ruled gave them a ruling in a case they didn't like that they could just go to congress and congress would would overturn that that's not how that's not how it works congress cannot do that and this was just i think the inferior to the supreme court portion of that uh, list of powers was just to prevent anyone from even trying to do that to prevent confusion uh, amongst the branches of government But the first part, uh, to constitute tribunals, is the most important part of that because it clearly establishes in the power of Congress that they have the ability to do this. A tribunal is simply a forum, like a court, a forum of justice where disputes can be resolved. And if you look back over Congress's history, what you'll see is many of the most famous, the most noteworthy, or the most memorable committee hearings, uh, which were also investigations, because the, the committee members were trying to find out what happened, involved settling a dispute. For example, the Iran-Contra hearings. 
there were claims made that the Reagan administration was trying to use arms for hostages by selling arms to Iran, then using the money to fund anti-communist groups in Nicaragua and other places. Well, the Reagan administration said, no, we weren't. So that's a dispute. And so the Iran-Contra hearings that Congress conducted were intended to try to settle that dispute by establishing the fullest possible accounting of the facts. Another example that I remember from my, my, my undergraduate days was the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court hearings. And these were, these were confirmation hearings. These were not an investigative uh, function specifically. But there were claims made that at the time that Mr. Thomas had engaged in sexual harassment, and he denied that. So that's another example of a dispute. Probably the most famous, though, uh, I think, congressional hearing were, were the McCarthy hearings in 1954, where then-Senator McCarthy had claimed and had gone to great lengths to, to convince the American public that the State Department had been infiltrated by communists. And, of course, keep in mind the historical period during which this took place, 1954. So the Cold War is really becoming front and center uh, in the American consciousness and the, uh, and the attention of American citizens. And so there was a thing called the Red Scare where folks started thinking that, that communists were infiltrating not just the State Department, but even, um, and stop me if you, if you think this sounds familiar to today, but uh, communists were infiltrating school boards and state governments and the federal government and our bureaucracy. Communists were everywhere. So said the accusers. Of course, it, it turned out not to be true. Almost all of it was fabricated, exaggerated, or just made up. Uh, there were not communists everywhere. But at the time, um, you know, a lot of people thought that there were. And so those hearings sort of brought the issue um, into a, a organized structure that the public could see so that the information could be presented and questions could be asked and answered by, by direct witnesses. And, of course, in the case of the McCarthy hearings, what ended up happening was uh, Senator McCarthy himself ended up being discredited and the American uh, public opinion for the first time finally began to turn against him and his um, almost entirely fabricated accusations of, of communists everywhere. But that happened because there was a congressional hearing. So Article 1, Section 8, Powers of Congress, provides the first type of, of authority that Congress has, which is a direct power. So it's directly stated in the Constitution that Congress can establish tribunals and conduct those types of, of forums for dispute resolution. Okay, that's the first type. There is also an implied power of Congress. And this is something that comes from Article 1, Section 8, a different clause, Clause 18, which states, quote, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States. So what does that mean? Well, the Supreme Court explained in 1927, quote, we are of the opinion, and this is Justice uh, Van Devanter, a unanimous Supreme Court, by the way, at the time, we are of the opinion that the power of inquiry with process to enforce it is an essential and appropriate auxiliary to the legislative function. A legislative body cannot legislate wisely or effectively in the absence of information respecting the conditions which the legislation is intended to effect or change. And where the legislative body does not itself possess the requisite information, which is not infrequently true, recourse must be had to others who possess it. 
This was also upheld late, much later in 1957, and Chief, Chief Justice then, then Chief Justice Warren, who stated, quote, "The power of the Congress to conduct investigations is inherent in the legislative process. That power is broad." It encompasses inquiries concerning the administration of existing laws as well as proposed or possibly needed statutes. Okay, it comprehends probes into departments of the federal government to expose corruption, inefficiency, or waste. Okay, so what the Supreme Court is saying here is Congress is vested with passing federal law. That's its primary function as, as the, the, the top of the legislative branch on the, at the federal level. Congress makes the laws. In order to do that, it has to have the ability to conduct investigations and inquiries to determine whether or not laws it's considering passage might be better or not so good. In other words, whether the law might be effective. So should we pass this law or should we not pass this law? In order to get that answer, oftentimes we need to conduct hearings. We need to conduct public inquiry inquiries by calling witnesses, or subpoenaing documents, or in otherwise gathering facts and information needed to find answers to those questions. And so clearly, both through direct and implied powers, the Con Congress of the United States has the constitutional authority to hold investigative committee hearings such as the one that has been is being done for the events of January 6, 2021. That particular hearing is geared towards that the, the events of that day and the events that led up to it. But the, the same power has been used countless times and, and will hopefully continue to be used countless times by, by Congress again because this is a, a core function, a basic duty, if you will, of Congress to conduct these types of investigations and these types of hearings. So if you hear, and, and unfortunately today we have folks who are making the argument that this is an, a, somehow an illegitimate hearing, that's completely false, uh, and, and that's a kind assessment. Really, it's a lie. So anyone who says that this is an illegitimate hearing is lying uh, because they know better, because the powers are clearly spelled out in Congress, in the Constitution for Congress, and they've clearly been upheld multiple times by multiple Supreme Courts throughout United American history. So if you hear anyone say that the 1-6 the hearings are not legitimate, uh, that's not true, that person is lying to you. Okay, so Congress has the power to conduct these hearings. What exactly has it been doing with that power in res with respect to the events of January 6th? Well, so far, the, the committee has conducted over 1,000 interviews. It's collected over 100,000 documents, which includes texts and emails. Uh, it's already held one public hearing. That was back in July, where testimony from police officers that day who came under attack were, were called to testify. It's issued close to 100 subpoenas, and in only four of those instances, when a, a recipient hasn't complied, the House committee has voted for contempt of Congress charges, which can, be, which can lead to the person's arrest if they don't cooperate. So most of the, what that tells you is that most of the people subpoenaed either cooperated in some way or still being, being convinced to do so, but a handful who flat out refused were charged with contempt of Congress, which is also within uh, the congressional authority to do. And so think about the numbers there. I mean, that's a huge amount of information. A thousand interviews, and that's probably, um, it's probably more than that. You know, a hundred thousand, that's a round number, so it's probably more than that too. But that's an enormous, enormous amount 
of information. And, and the key to that is that no other single individual or organization anywhere has that much information specifically on the January 6th incident at the Capitol. You can call it an attack. That's kind of what I think of it as. You can call it a demonstration. You can call it an insurrection. Um, the dispute over what to call it is, in fact, you know, one of the big parts of this. Um, this is one of the facts that the committee hopes to establish is what actually happened and whether or not we should call it an attack or an insurrection or just, as some of my conservative friends said, a, a protest that got out of hand. I disagree with that assessment, but we'll wait and see what, what evidence the committee presents um, in, the, in the next few weeks as they do so um, with the public. But the point is they have more information. And so the fullest picture can only be obtained by having the most information. And so nobody else has that much, that, and nobody else has conducted that many interviews or has that many documents. News organizations don't have that much. Private individuals don't have that much. Uh, public individuals don't have that much. So nobody has more information on January 6th than the Congressional Committee that has been appointed to investigate those events. And what are they looking for? It's not just um, to uncover facts, although that is, of course, uh, central to the purpose of the committee. It's also to create an indelible historical record of those events. By Congress gathering that scope of, of information, which is extraordinarily large, that's a lot of info, that will create a living record of January 6th. So future historians can have access to that. And I'm sure it will happen in the future that, that historians will look through all that information and, and they'll argue about what, what it really means. Some will say it was clearly a, a coup attempt. Others will say, no, it wasn't a coup attempt. It was, it was a protest that got out of hand and resulted in, in people being you know, charged with, with criminal conduct, but that's the end of it. Either way, the, the congressional hearings will create that official record of all of that information and make that available for posterity to study. So that's an important function beyond simply finding out what happened on January 6th, that there is a record, a very full and extensive historical record that's being created right now by this committee that the future will have access to. So that, that's very important. And, and I think that's often overlooked because folks want to jump right ahead and just assume that the outcome or the conclusions that the committee have reached are, are already known, which, which in fact they are not because the committee has not even released all of the information it has uh, as of yet. I think they're going to start doing that in more detail in the coming weeks with the, with the public version, with the public portions of their hearings. But not everything that they have access to has been made public yet. So it's impossible to say that we know what the committee's conclusion is when we don't even have all of the committee's evidence or data yet. We'll have to wait for that. The committee cannot by themselves charge anyone with criminal conduct with respect to the events of January 6th, but they can refer to the Justice Department in what's called a criminal referral. Um, they can ask that Justice Department initiate criminal charges against one if during the course of their investigation they, come, they discover or uncover compelling evidence that proves criminal conduct by any individual or group of individuals. Whether or not that will reach the level of the president himself is yet to be known. 
there is a precedent. The and I, I didn't mention this uh, earlier when I talked about examples of previous famous committee hearings, but obviously the Watergate hearings were also amongst the most noteworthy in American history because they resulted in the resignation of then President Nixon. And essentially he had been involved in a number of criminal activities to stop his opponents, political opponents, from being able to, to beat him in an election. So he was engaged in criminal conduct to try to, to make sure that he had an edge or an advantage and would be reelected. And when the, when, the, when the congressional leaders told him that he did not have enough, told Nixon he did not have enough votes to survive an impeachment hearing, then he, he announced his resignation the next day. In other words, had the committee was going to go towards impeachment, the Watergate hearings, that, that's where it was headed. And the Senate leaders especially told him, look, you don't have the votes. If it goes to an impeachment, we're going to vote to convict you and you'll be the first president in American history to be removed from office by Congress. And so hearing that, Nixon knew the writing was on the wall, and shortly thereafter he tendered his resignation. So that they can, the, the Congressional Committee hearings can be enormously impactful. Uh, there's no office that's too high for Congress to investigate. That is part of their oversight function, um, which the, you know, the president is part of the, is the head of the executive branch, but Congress has oversight over the Congress, over the executive branch. So they have a core function to conduct oversight of the president's conduct while in office. And that is something I think we will hear about more um, as this committee reveals more of its information and more of its findings. Now, a lot of folks say, okay, fine, I, I, I understand all that. It's in, it's, there's a lot of committees have been done in the past that were very impactful and, and you know, shaped the course of American history and et cetera. We get that. But this is all political. Well, anything Congress does is political. There's, there's really no escaping that. Um, anything the president does is political. Um, when folks criticize or, or applaud an action, it, it's because it resonates with whatever politics they think is right and, and goes against whatever politics they think is wrong. So, of course, the hearings are, are political. I, there, there will be no point in denying that. That doesn't mean that information that's uncovered during the course of the committee's work is not worth taking into account. That doesn't mean you can just discount what they find. It doesn't mean that information the committee uncovers or brings to the public attention should be simply uh, disregarded or ignored simply because the proceedings themselves will be politically charged. Well, of course they'll be politically charged. That's, that's almost always the case um, with congressional hearings or congressional investigations. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. So the politics of it does not negate the underlying facts that will be brought to light or could be brought to light and already have been in some cases. Uh, though there have been leaks, I think the committee will probably be more specific and more detailed um, in the, the information that they make public with the upcoming televised hearings that are getting ready to start on this Thursday. Of course, elections are inherently political, and that's at the heart of what the, the January 6th committee will be investigating. And I think that, that their, their information should be interesting in, in shedding light on um, the events that led up to, the, to that day. But the election itself, which the focus of the, uh, the 2020 election, should not, the election outcome itself is not in doubt. All 50 state legislatures certified the election results as valid. All 50. And, and many of those are Republican-controlled legislatures. 
So all 50 states certified their individual state results as valid. A majority of Congress voted to certify the results as valid. Over 60 court rulings against the charges that there was impropriety or ballots, you know, box stuffing or, or those kind of charges. Over 60 court rulings. Every court case that was brought to challenge the results were, were shot down in court. The courts ruled it invalid. The Supreme Court did not rule, let it let the lower court ruling stand. Um, and many of those judges that, that ruled against the election interference charges or election stealing charges had been appointed by President Trump himself. So it's sort of tough to make the argument that those justices or those judges were politically motivated in their decisions when they'd been appointed by Donald Trump himself. So there should be no question in anyone's mind at all that Joe Biden won the 2020 election by a pretty wide margin. Uh, it really wasn't even close and that there was no widespread election fraud. There was no stolen election. Uh, none of that ever actually happened. Now, from this point on, you can say you, you don't like the decisions he's made since he's been in the office of presidency. You can say you don't uh, agree with his policy positions. That's fine. That That's all well and good. But the fact is he won the election in 2020, and that's not in dispute. And folks who are saying that he didn't are lying. Uh, there's no other way to say it. And they're lying on a vast and a broad scale, which includes, unfortunately, former President Trump himself, who continues to repeat his own lies uh, that he actually won in 2020, which he did not. Now, does telling a lie rise to the level of criminal conduct? And the answer is usually no. You can express your opinion, even if you're wrong, even if you know it's not true. Simply telling a lie is usually not by itself criminal conduct. So we have to draw a distinction between someone who's just lying for whatever reason and someone who actually broke the law. And so whether or not there will be criminal, any criminal charges that result from the investigation uh, efforts of the January 6th committee remains to be seen because establishing criminal conduct is a much higher standard of proof. You have to demonstrate that specific laws were broken and you have to provide evidence that will stand up in court to substantiate those charges. So I don't know if that will happen or not. I suspect it may for some of the folks who were involved, but that's speculation on my part. I have to wait and see until all of the evidence and all of the facts that the uh, January 6th committee has uncovered or discovered are known and, and evaluated. So we'll have to wait and see. There's no question that, that President Trump lied. There's no question that many of his, his supporters lied on his behalf. And there's no question that they continue to lie on his behalf. Uh, the specific lie in question being that the election was stolen. It wasn't. They continue to lie that he won. He didn't. But telling lies by itself uh, is a different thing from criminal conduct. So I just hope that folks will keep that in mind when they listen to or, or read about the findings or the facts or the evidence that the committee has, is going to present. Um, that's, that someone simply telling a lie um, isn't good enough to, to send someone to jail or convict them of criminal conduct. We have, there have to be specific laws that were broken and, and specific credible evidence that will stand up in court to support that. And so we'll, we'll see what happens um, as we go forward. I would also expect, since this is an election year, for you know, political hyperbole to become even more intense uh, in, the, uh, in the, the discussion that will inevitably accompany such a very high-profile, very public hearing of, of January 6th. I remember watching it on television, 
And I remember thinking that you know this this is the type of thing that happens in a third world country. This is not something that happens in the United States. Um, so I, I was pretty shocked to, to watch that that play out, and then to see the the leadership at the time drag their feet or or do nothing in the immediate aftermath of the uh, the January sixth attacks, and just simply sit there and do nothing. Uh, so I hope that 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 is part of the information that this committee supplies to the public as to why specifically uh, the security response was so bad uh, and so inadequate to what was clearly an attempt to stop the election certification from taking place. To me, for my opinion, um, a coup by definition is the use of force to seize power or the use of force to prevent a lawfully elected leader from taking power. So in other words, if you win an election and someone tries to use force to overturn those results, by definition, that is a coup attempt. Now, obviously, the January 6th was a failed coup attempt. It didn't work. And I'm not saying that everyone there who were protesting on the Capitol grounds was part of it. I'm not saying that. If you were just carrying signs or, or uh, waving, you know, or shouting slogans, um, even though I may not agree with what you were saying, that's all First Amendment protected. So if you were just out on the streets waving banners or waving flags or shouting slogans, that's First Amendment protected. I, I have no problem with that. There, you didn't break any laws. The folks who actually physically broke into the Capitol building, those are the people who committed crimes and, and are rightfully being prosecuted now by the Department of Justice in what is one of the largest such investigations in, in American history. Hundreds have already been charged. The numbers I see have changed. I've seen up to 500. I've seen as many as 800 uh, I'm not sure what the exact number is, but either one of those two is just enormous. That's an enormous invest investigation, and that's an, a huge number of people that are being charged with criminal conduct uh, for breaking into the Capitol building uh, on January 6th. And, and they've, through their own statements, made it clear that their purpose was to prevent the certification of, of president-elect at the time, Joe Biden, as the winner of the 2020 elections. Some of them have said that they felt that they were there at the invitation of Donald Trump. Maybe they, they felt that way. Um, even that by itself doesn't mean he doesn't prove he committed any specific crime. It just means he, he lied in public and they listened to him. Well, okay, adults are responsible for their own action. So if someone you know tells you to do something and you know it's wrong and you do it anyway, you're still responsible for your own actions. So we also also have to keep that in mind uh, when we listen to the uh, the hearings play out. But I don't think we should we should take lightly or or make light of the events that took place that day. Um, for over 200 years, the United States has had a tradition of a peaceful transition of power from one administration to the other. We've done it through world wars. We've done it through civil war. We've done it through depressions. We've done it through natural disasters. For over two centuries, until January 6, 2021, there was a peaceful transition of power in this country. And now, as of last year, that two centuries-long tradition was broken. It was interrupted. This time, there was not a peaceful transition of power. And the American people deserve to know why. They deserve to know who was responsible to the fullest extent that, that we can possibly determine, they deserve to know all the details, all of the information, and all of the facts surrounding January 6, 20, 2021. That's something that the American people deserve to know. And so that is why this committee's hearings 
these committees' hearings are so important and so vital and so critical, not just to the present, but also to our future. Because if the people who were involved get away with it, then it's more likely that these types of events will happen again in the future. And I think it's absolutely one of the goals of the committee to prevent this type of uh, attack from happening again in the future. And I think that the, the DOJ's prosecution of many of those who were involved will also help uh, prevent future attacks like this from happening because I think people will see that if you do this, you're going to go to jail. You're going to get charged and you're going to be prosecuted and you're going to end up in a prison cell, which, which you should. Again, the folks who physically broke in to the Capitol building trying to prevent the certification of the election results, not people who were just protesting or, or expressing their opinion, however loudly, doesn't matter, uh, outside in public. That's, that's all protected under the First Amendment. But the First Amendment does not give you the right to break into the Capitol and stop the certification of an election just because you believe somebody's lies. It doesn't cover that. That's criminal conduct, not First Amendment protected. And as we go forward, I just hope folks recognize that there's a line out there we all have to face, we all have to acknowledge as citizens, there's a point where we have the ability to express our opinions freely um, under the protection of our Constitution, but there's also a point where our actual actions, where our conduct, where our behavior, if it crosses into criminal territory, then we are still responsible for our actions, regardless of the reasons why we were doing it. You know, we, we believed something that was false. Well, that doesn't justify committing a crime. That's no defense uh, in, in the commission of a crime. It can't be used as a defense in commission of a crime. So I really, I look forward to these hearings. And the main purpose I just wanted to emphasize today was that they are 100% legitimate, completely author and fully authorized by the United States Constitution. This is a core function of Congress. It is their duty it is their responsibility, legally and morally, to conduct to the maximum extent and to the best of their ability a fact-finding inquiry into January 6th and to what happened that day and what they find and the, and the information that they uncover will become a permanent part of the American historical record for future historians and for future citizens to study and to try to learn from. And so it's very important work that they're doing. It's vital work that they're doing. It's constitutionally authorized work that they're doing. And I, ho I hope folks will just keep that in mind as they listen to or read about the findings that the committee is going to unveil uh, in the next few weeks. There's going to be the temptation, uh, depending on the nature of the facts that are found or released, for one political party to try to discredit not just the individual facts, but the whole proceedings. And indeed, they're already trying to do that. Um, that is not something that the American public can afford. That is not something the country can afford. And the folks that are doing that should be ashamed of themselves because they're lying, they're wrong, and they're working against the best interests of the United States. So thanks for listening and hope everyone has a great day.